Amen. How are y'all doing today? Good. This is definitely a summer crowd, I can tell. <laughs> Bless you for those who are on vacation and tuning in. Um, we'll turn to Daniel chapter 6 this morning. Let me see if this is going to work for me. I always have to check to make sure. Yes, okay, awesome. Um, turn to Daniel chapter 6, and we've divided this story of Daniel in the lion's den into two parts. Scott will preach Daniel in the lion's den itself next week, and I'm going to kind of preach the build-up to that. So I'll begin in verse 1, and um, could you uh, change the slides for me? Thank you, Mark. Uh, Daniel 1, 6, verse 1 says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set, over him, to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and of the Persians." which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not make, sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Is the screen flashing behind me? It's not? Okay, it's just the one I'm looking at. Okay, good. Um, I can live with that. So the Persian Empire was divided into these satrapies, these provinces, and that was then governed by a satrap who was a provincial governor. These 120 provincial governors or satraps reported to three high officials who were over them, who then reported to the king, of whom Daniel was one of the three. And so he's in this incredibly high position of authority, really, in the Persian government, which is now the new reigning power, right? Because last week we learned 
Persia has now overcome Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. And we don't really have any reason for Daniel's promotion other than that there was this spirit of excellence, which is where we get that language, right, from the Bible. There's a spirit of excellence in Daniel, and he was distinguished above everyone, everyone else. He was just better at his job than everyone else advanced. And so this conspiracy's hatched to basically take Daniel down. He's advancing too quickly, and they're all jealous. And so they devise this conspiracy that people can only pray to Darius for 30 days. And um, in doing this, they basically know Daniel to be a man of prayer. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn off this TV because it's exploding. <laughs> huh? Don't? Okay, I'll turn it back on for you. <laughs> it's, it's flashing on and off. Um, so basically, uh, they know Daniel's a man of prayer, and they also know that Daniel prays where he can be seen, which is interesting. Um, so although this is both the story of his private devotion before the Lord, it's also not true that Daniel has what we might call a private faith that no one knows about. That's the reason they hatch this conspiracy, because he's known to be a man of prayer, and he actually prays where he can be seen. Of course, our culture tells us, keep your faith out of sight, hidden in a way of sight, right? Daniel didn't. So there's this verse in which uh, they are looking for a complaint to find against Daniel, and it, it says it's a complaint with regard to the kingdom. So what that probably means is initially they were looking at his job performance, right? His, his work in regard to the kingdom. Is there any complaint or error or flaw in his job performance? And they couldn't find it. There was a spirit of excellence in him. So their only recourse is to find something they can use against him in his religious practice, in the law of his God. And that's what they do. That's what they try to exploit. Um, so um, you're going to have to do the uh, slides for me, Mark. Verse 10 says this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I want us to take note of the fact that <laughs> he, is, he knows. I mean, the, the text makes perfectly clear Daniel knows. He doesn't fall unknowingly into their trap, right? When he knew the document had been signed, he goes and prays. So it's not like he unsuspectingly falls into their trap. He deliberately disobeys the law. We also find that the truth is this. Daniel could have easily hidden, right? I mean, how easy would it have been for him to close his window? How easy would it have been for Daniel not to kneel? I mean, all you have to do is pray in your head while you're walking around and no one would know you're praying, right? I mean, it would have been so easy for Daniel to still pray for 30 days and not get caught, right? But he doesn't. And it's also worth noting that the law of his God does not command that he pray three times a day. The Torah, the Jewish Torah, does not command that Israelites pray three times a day with their window open towards Jerusalem, Right? So Donald Gowan says this, he's not commanded by the Jewish law to pray three times a day. So he can easily find an excuse that might not violate his conscience. 
but this new law seeks to tell him how he cannot worship God. And I think that's important. Um, the, actually, the word for law in verse 5 is not the normal word for law, Torah. And so really the idea here is his religious practices. They're trying to find, they're trying to use his religious practices against him, right? And again, how easy would it have been for Daniel to say, well, the Bible doesn't command me to do this. Like, he could have easily not done it, right? Not prayed three times a day with his window open. But interestingly, Daniel won't allow this humanistic law that prayer be made to Darius influence his spiritual disciplines or infringe upon his rule of life. He won't let that happen, which I think is fascinating. So what are Daniel's prayer habits? Well, just kind of looking at it quickly, he has a, he has a designated prayer room, kind of cool, the upstairs of his house. He opens his windows towards Jerusalem, the use of, of objects around. He has a prayer posture. He's on his knees. He has diverse prayers, thanksgivings, which we talked about already today, petitions, pleas. He's got set times. Three times a day he prays. Do you guys have prayer habits? Do you all have ways that you structure your prayer life? Um, I think these can be so wonderful. Maybe a set place. Maybe certain postures. Maybe set times. Do you have the use of objects that aid you and guide you in your prayers? Um, these can be really wonderful. So, I want us to take note of this. Even though Daniel is this incredibly high official in the Persian government and in line to become basically the second under only Darius, notice how they refer to Daniel. They say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. I mean, think about it. That's like, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, like, I'll take Kamala Harris because she's the vice president. This is no political endorsement, of course. Um, that would be like introducing Kamala Harris and saying, some girl from California, right? I mean, that's, that's how they, they speak of Daniel in this moment, right? He's one of the exiles, right? So even here we see, even through his advancement, they're saying he's not one of us. He's not among us. He's, not a, he's an outcast, right? And that line would have been read by Jews who even, you know, who were the audience of the book of Daniel who felt like exiles, who were exiles under and dominated by foreign powers. But the Jews continued to feel like exiles right up into the Roman Empire. So that by the time Jesus comes on the scenes, the Jewish people still feel like exiles, even though they had long been given the opportunity to return to the land of Israel. And even Jews who lived in the land of Israel still felt like exiles there because they were dominated by these foreign powers. So one of the main ideas of this text, I think it could be said pretty simply, it could be said this way, that the people of God often find themselves as a people dominated by a foreign or oppressive culture that doesn't worship our God. And I think that's our experience in a way here in a secular, oppressive environment, and it's the way it is in a different instance where Amy Jacks is in Jordan, right? We find ourselves in these places in cultures that do not worship our God, and in response, we need to cultivate spiritual disciplines in Babylon, spiritual practices that help secure 
your worship and allegiance for God. Because if you don't, then you will assimilate into a culture that worships the wrong things, whether Darius or whatever else. And once you establish these spiritual disciplines, you will need to ruthlessly protect them because the culture will not help you do that. Um, Daniel is, I think, a very timely example for us in this way, for us today. And an example that I've strayed from at times, to be completely honest. I've gone from seasons where I pray a lot. In 2005, I graduated high school and lived in Kansas City for six months at IHOP, the house of prayer, where Emily and Joshua Aldi are. And I prayed 40 hours a week because I had to, but I did. And I came back, and uh, I had a, a, a thriving prayer life for a few years, and then I just kind of started telling myself things, like, you know what, isn't this kind of legalistic? Um, I, I'm just too busy to keep this kind of prayer life or a devotional life, and you know what, I, I'm kind of into personality tests, and it's just not my personality. Um, I'm just not a type A, I'm just not a very scheduled person. I found a lot of reasons to basically quit praying and quit having set times of prayer, sacred moments in my rhythm of life for God to come and meet me and me to sit before him. And I spent the better part of eight years without a prayer life, all while being a pastor. Ching. <laughs> um, so, to my shame, of course. And it's, and it's been only really in the past, like, two years that I've come to a place where I finally realized I live in Babylon I can't afford to be unintentional about my devotional life. I, I can't wait until I'm less busy or until I feel like it. I, I, I'm now in my mid-30s, and I think I'm realizing I'll never be less busy. <laughs> I'm finally arrived at that. <laughs> maybe, maybe in retirement. I don't know. Um, so I'm not waiting. Okay, so thank you. Not in retirement. Okay. So I'll never be less busy. Um, and I have to be vigilant. The cost is just too great. The cost to your soul is just too great. Babylon's messaging is relentless, isn't it? We have to bear this in mind. And if you're sitting here going like, okay, well, I, I've been like spending daily prayer uh, and time in the word for decades. I'm not preaching to you. <laughs> so if you feel like I'm preaching to the choir, can you just be my amen corner, okay? If, you, if you're going like, duh, great. Um, but for many of us, I feel like this is a great challenge. And I actually will say, to some extent, it's generational. I saw among my millennial generation, and to some extent, the generation before us, where, uh, the, you know, Gen, Gen X, um, where we just kind of were like, we bucked against anything that felt legalistic. And the pendulum just swung. And now people wonder why they can't commune with God. Uh, now people wonder why in the secular age they struggle to have a prayer life. Well, it's because we've cast off discipline. And I don't, I've come to this point where I'm like, regardless of how I feel about discipline, my soul needs God. <laughs> and I can't afford to be careless about that. Um, Corey Tin Boone said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And... Some of us just feel too busy to have a devotional life. 
Daniel was one of three high officials to whom 120 provincial governors reported from Egypt to India. Do you think Daniel was busy? And yet he was ruthless about protecting these set times of prayer. Three times a day, Daniel stopped whatever he was doing, pulled away, went to the upper chamber of his house, opened his window, looked in the direction of Jerusalem, got on his knees, and prayed. First Peter calls Christians exiles three times. It connects Rome to Babylon in chapter 5, and it mentions the fiery trial, probably an allusion to the fiery furnace. The point is this, is there's clear connections between Babylonian exile and the theology of First Peter. First Peter 4, 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is a scripture I've been meditating on this year, and I, sometimes I take a passage, I take a verse, and I say, I wonder if this is true. Play with me for a second. Of course it's true. But what I mean by that is, I'm going to filter this through my life for a while and let the truths bear out. So, so I did. I, I pressed into self-control, um, and just finding simple ways to exercise self-control, like things that don't even seem spiritual, like I'm going to go to the bathroom without my phone. It's possible. You could do that, actually. Um, or, whatever, or just ways to say, just to deny myself, exercise self-control. Have more control and be more self-possessed over my mind and my actions, right? And also asking myself, what are ways that really cause my mind to be drunk? <laughs> Drunk with things that I'm not, I'm not really clear-minded in my thinking about the world. I'm not sober-minded. Um, and guess what? It helps you pray. I found that to be true. Like Peter says, a self-control, sober-mindedness is a gift to your prayer life in this world. And also knowing that the end of all things is at hand, which Daniel had a lot of visions of the end of all things, didn't he? Right? So living with the clarity of the fading reality of this world, the temporal reality of this world, exercising some self-control, seeking sober-mindedness, it helps us pray. Most of us are a little too distracted. I think distraction, is prob- distraction and busyness and maybe some lack of self-control are, pr- are really the primary reasons for prayerlessness in the church a lot of the time. Not a desire. I think all of us want to have a prayer life. I I don't find it always very helpful to tell someone they don't really want something. I think we actually want a lot of good things most of the time. But there's other things at play, right? Um, There's this story of, well, real quick. So the truth is this, is I can't schedule encounters with God, really. I can't say, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., and God's going to encounter me in these ways as I plan. It's always grace. I can position myself before the Lord. But it's, it's always God who decides to reveal himself to me. I can't make God reveal himself to me, right? I can't, you can't schedule revelation. Um, you can't make it happen by your human effort. It's grace. Um, a rabbi once taught his uh, disciples, his students, that encounters with God are experiences, moments of of grace, 
almost accidental, he said. And his students responded, okay, well, if encounters with God are just accidental, then why are we spending all this time doing spiritual disciplines? To become as accident-prone as possible, the rabbi responded. And that's what Daniel depicts for us here. That's what disciplines do. They say, God, I'm just going to posture myself. I'm going to place myself at the mercy of your goodness and revelation, which we can trust in, and say, I I want to become as accident-prone as possible, that God's encounter, revelation, and grace would manifest itself in our life. And that's what spiritual disciplines really are at the end of the day. So you say, okay, I see prayer in Daniel chapter 6. Gabriel, where are you getting the Bible from? Well, if you look a little deeper, we actually see that a biblical worldview is very much at play here in Daniel's devotional life. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, you can get that up, says, if they, okay, so this is Solomon at the dedication of the temple, hundreds of years before Babylonian exile. He's praying that the temple be dedicated to God. And in the middle of his prayer, he says this, if they, God's people, sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried off away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we've sinned, we've acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave them to their fathers, the city, what does that remind you of? Yep, praying towards Jerusalem in the land of captivity. That's what Daniel's doing in chapter six. That you've chosen in the house that I've built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Next verse. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. Verse 51, for they're your people and your heritage which you brought out of the land of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. If you remember, Scott preached on the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, right? And he talked about how the image of God bringing his people out of a furnace, that was Exodus imagery. And you see this in the Old Testament. The Exodus being depicted as God taking his people out of a furnace. So in Daniel chapter 3, Scott preached about how this is like, they're going, this isn't how the story works. We're supposed to be the people God's brought out of the furnace. How can we get put back in? But of course, God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace. So what's happening here is Daniel, he, he's heard Solomon's prayer. Whether he's read it or whether he's heard about it, and he's opening his window, praying towards Jerusalem. He knows that God's the kind of God that brings his people out of furnaces. He did that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's turn to Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. It says this, For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah writes, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then our favorite verse, 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So Jeremiah says, you're going to be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to take you captive, and you'll be in captivity for a set time, 70 years. Jeremiah 29 is a letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles, okay? He sent to Babylon. He sent this letter, Jeremiah 29, is sent to Babylon to the, the Jewish exiles there, saying, you've got 70 years there. And this is the same letter where he says, build houses, plant vineyards, give your sons and daughters in marriage, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. And by the way, it's 70 years that you'll be there. Okay? Let's turn to Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So in Daniel 9, we find that Daniel is reading Jeremiah 29, right? He knows it's going to be 70 years. And by the way, this happens in the first year of Darius's reign, which means by the time we're reading Daniel 6, in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, he's already read Jeremiah 29, right? Hold on to that. So Daniel reads Jeremiah 29, he reads the letter, and he just gets propelled into prayer, crying out for these things to be true. He looks back at Solomon's prayer. He looks back at the iron furnace. He looks back at Jeremiah's letter. He, he hears Solomon's ancient prayer and puts spiritual disciplines in place in his life, opening his window towards Jerusalem. He hears, he reads Jeremiah's letter, and he begins crying out for God to bring about Jeremiah 29, 11, for a future and a hope to be made manifest for God's people. He, he reads, he hears about the iron furnace. And he knows, yeah, that's what God's doing. That's what God did in the lives of my friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's how Daniel reads the Bible. Hearing the Bible, finding himself enlisted by the scriptures, called to action, involved in the text, right? He's not removed from the text. He's not this passive onlooker when he comes to the Bible, which begs the question, how do you read the Bible? How do you read it? I think this is a very important question. Now, it should be said that the practice of reading the Bible each day is a wonderful practice in the same way that praying three times a day is a wonderful practice. It should also be said, neither are actually commanded by Scripture. Why do you think it is, for a second, why do you think it is that there's no verse in the New Testament that tells Christians, read a chapter of the Old Testament each day? You ever thought about that? What do y'all think? Why is it? Why is there no verse in the New Testament that says, Read one chapter, read two chapters, or here's a regimen of how much scripture every Christian should read every day. Why? What do you think? Do what? No printing press. It would have been impossible, right? 
So, for lack, there, so, okay, let me just kind of paint the picture here. You know, Christians in Corinth, for example, um, they had Paul's letter to them, First and Second Corinthians, and a few others that actually didn't make it into our Bible. <laughs> Paul wrote multiple letters to Corinth. And maybe they had the Torah, and maybe they had the Psalms, and those were treasured manuscripts in that community in Corinth. But they were really not the property of individuals. It belonged to the community, right? Um, and even long after, uh, even after many churches had the full Bible, right? We'll say the fourth century AD. It's not like the average Christian could just come and be like, yeah, I'd like to read the Bible today. That, that was the property of the community. Pretty much studied by the leaders of the community, right? It would have been possible for Christians to read the Bible every day. So let me ask you this. Does that mean that ancient Israelites and ancient Christians were to not see the Bible, the word of God, as a part of their spiritual life? No. They were to meditate upon the scriptures and, when possible, to commit it to memory. So for the vast majority of the history of the people of God, one of the primary reasons people went to synagogue or went to the temple or went to the church was to hear the Bible, to hear the word of God. They didn't have it on their shelves, right? And when they heard it, they'd treasure it. They'd hold on to that. And they're sitting in their seats trying to commit it to memory. If you've seen the, the show, the TV show, The Chosen, um, you see this, a really good example of this, how particularly Jewish men would go to Torah school and they were able to commit large chunks of Hebrew scripture to memory, right? And that would guide their prayers. That they would meditate that through the day as they're going through their daily life. They didn't have their own personal copy, but the word of God for thousands of years was an object of meditation and prayer. Studying the scriptures wasn't an opportunity that most Jews or Christians ever got the opportunity. Studying the scriptures was what priests and rabbis got to do. And then later, what Christian preachers and theologians and monks got to do. Studying the scriptures is not what the average Christian got to do, which is why all of y'all should sign up for the Fullness Academy. <laughs> Shameless plug. But my point is this, is that meditation of the scriptures, that was your access point to the word of God. And it's important, I think, to realize that. Easy access to the word of God now has wonderful benefits. And I actually want to be clear, I think the benefits far outweigh any cons. But at the same time, I think one of the drawbacks is that now that Bible verses are always a search and a click away, practices of meditation and praying the scriptures, it's falling by the wayside. We're drowning with access to the Bible. We've gotten really good at using the Bible, which is fitting, I think, because isn't that what we've become in this digital age? Users? The Bible is an infallible book of God's revelation for spiritual formation. When you open the Bible, you're seeing the world as God sees it, which, by the way, is the world in which the same world in which we're a part, involved, participants within it. And so if I come to the Bible only asking the question, how does this book benefit me? 
It's not that I'm asking a bad question. It's that I'm not asking nearly enough questions. Eugene Peterson says this, we must never be encouraged to do what we must never be encouraged to do, although all of us are guilty of it over and over, is to force the scripture to fit our experience. Our experience is too small. It's just too small. It's like trying to put the ocean into a thimble. What we want is to fit into the world revealed by scripture to swim in this vast ocean, which is why it's important that we read large sections of scripture as well as small, that you and I be a people who can meditate on a phrase, a single phrase, who can meditate on a verse, treasuring it, who meditate on an entire story, who meditate at times on the whole narrative of Genesis to Revelation, that our meditation is huge and tiny and everything in between, as this frames our view of the world as God sees it. Eugene Peterson goes on to say, the text assumes that we are participants in what is written, not accidental drop-ins, not hit-or-miss bystanders, not an addendum or footnote. Romans 15 verse 14 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's all written for us. It may not be written to us directly as the original audience, and we need to be clear about that, but it's all written to us. You're not an accidental drop-in when you open the Bible. Not at all. Sometimes I wince a little bit when I hear Christians use the word biblical. Well, brother, that's not biblical. And what they really mean by that is, I can think of a lot of Bible verses to prove you wrong, right? So that the primary way we use the word biblical is in reference to argumentation. So that a biblical Christian is someone who can argue from the Bible. Again, Eugene Peterson said this, Biblical for me came to mean living, imagining, believing, loving, conversing in this world, living in this precisely rendered and richly organic context, which comes to full expression in Jesus, who talked in street language, and to which I was given access by the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. It did not mean cobbling together texts to prove or substantiate a dogma or a practice. Biblical no longer meant merely referring to the Bible or substantiating my position from the Bible. It referred to the strange new world within the Bible, a world in which most of what takes place is invisible, with visible effects, a world in which I was a full participant, involved. I love that. That's how I try to read the Bible. As I see it, there's, there's three really common ways that I've noticed people approach the Bible. We could put these up on screen. Uh, the first could be called a, a self-indulgent reading of the Bible. And a self-indulgent reading is really driven by personal interests, right? Um, what do I get out of it? What do I need today? What do I want to hear today? Um, dri just driven by per my personal interests, right? Me telling the Bible how it needs to bless me. 
Um, on the other extreme is what I would call self-removed reading, which is driven by academic interests. And I promise you I've been guilty of this one many times. The Lord's dealt with me on this many times, where my primary motivation uh, for reading the Bible is academic interests, at which point I'm really removed, myself is removed from the text. I'm really standing over the Bible, analyzing it, more so than it standing over me and analyzing me. And the best way to read, I think, although of course there's a place for academic reading, to be sure, is participatory reading. And by that, what I mean is I'm involved, but I know I'm not the central character. The biblical world, it's our world. The same world in which you're inhabiting right now in this room. It's not a different world, but it's God's interpretation of this world. And this participatory reading is how Daniel came to the Bible. He felt himself enlisted by Jeremiah 29 as he read it, didn't he? And then he prayed as a participant in God's ongoing story. He's not central to Jeremiah chapter 29 or the letter to the exiles, but he's involved. And so he prayer engages him in that text. Eugene Peterson says, prayer, particularly praying the scriptures, is how we work our way out of the comfortable but cramped world of self. So when it's all about you, that's comfortable, isn't it? But there's no room for anything else. Comfortable but cramped world of self into the self-denying but spacious world of God. And that's what Daniel's experiencing in Daniel 9. He's reading Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. It's not all about him, and he knows it, but he's involved. And he's crying out for God's plans and purposes to be made about, come about. And I just want to get just vulnerable just for a little bit here. Um, I've I kind of like recently come to this place in the past few months where like, I was like, you know, I, I really like love meeting with people and talking about um, their, their life and their pains and their sufferings and their journeys and talking about how God might be moving in that and talking about how God's using it, talking about scripture that could be related to it, talking about, talking about, talking about, talking about God. I was like, I go to lunch with people and I talk about God with them. And they talk about God with me. And I have coffee with people and we talk about God. We talk about the Bible. And I hit this point where I was like, I'm kind of tired of talking about God with people. And, and I, it was like a, I, don't, I had like a breakdown almost about it. Like as much as I love talking about God, and I, I do, but I was like, like we, I, I pray the obligatory prayer when we sit down to lunch that God would be a part of our conversation as we all do. But I finally came to the point where I was like, I'm just, next time I meet with someone, I'm gonna be like, can we just like pray through a psalm together? And that's what I'm doing with people now. I'm saying, let's just open a psalm. And just line by line, take the next 30 minutes and just speak this back to God. And I'm finding so much life in this. There comes a point where it's like, do we just talk about God incessantly? 
as wonderful as talking about God is. That at some point we'd be a people who were addressing God together. Amen. Fine. Just grab someone. I, I, they probably won't say no. If, if all, just guilt them into it, right? Just be like, hey, let's pray the Bible together. You, sit in that chair, let's do it. <laughs> and if they do say no, let them off hook, of course. Um, Daniel knows, again, that Jeremiah doesn't write this letter to him personally, but that doesn't cause him to lose interest and decide to sit this one out. No, he begins crying out for Jeremiah 29, 11 to be made manifest. Daniel knows that Solomon certainly wasn't thinking of him specifically when he told future exiles to pray toward Jerusalem in the land of their captivity, but he chooses to participate in that. Makes that a part of his regular spiritual discipline in life. He, he knows that, that God's still taking his people out of iron furnaces. He watched that happen in the lives of his friends. Daniel's life is drenched in a biblical worldview. He's a biblical man in the best sense of the word. What if when we talked about a biblical Christian, we weren't primarily thinking of someone who could argue in, in accordance with the scriptures? We were primarily thinking of someone who lived in accordance with the scriptures. You know, after eight years of Bible college and seminary, I have an above average amount of Bible knowledge in my brain. If I don't, I want my money back. But I promise you, there are people in this room who live a more biblical life than I do, even though I have more Bible knowledge than they do. It says we partner with the grace of God and the spiritual disciplines guide us. We live biblically. Of course, there's many spiritual disciplines. Today I'm focusing primarily on prayer and meditation around the scriptures, the word of God. You know, sometimes I come before the Lord in my morning devotion and I just feel you know, emotionally empty. Like, I don't feel like I'm bringing anything to the Lord. I'm just present, but hardly even that. And I just feel stoic before God. Um, and I'll remind myself, that's not his disposition, just because I feel that way. I can't impose those emotions on God. Jeremiah 31, verse 20, says this. Is Ephraim, that's a word for Israel, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Uh, the word here translated heart is the Hebrew word me'eh, which um, refers to the inward parts, your bowels, your intestines, um, or your stomach. Daniel went into the me'eh of the fish. It also could refer to a woman's womb, these inward parts in this area of the body, right? That's the, that's the mea. And it can be used figuratively to speak of having pity or compassion, expressing distress, or having love for someone. Today, uh, we mean something very different than the Hebrews when we talk about someone being moved in their bowels, right? And given that, um, we don't translate it literally. You know, if we literally, you could literally translate 
Jeremiah 31, 20 as my stomach growls for him because the word translated yearn is growl or roar. Um, and if we translated it literally like that, like my stomach growls for him, we'd think, yikes, God wants to eat me, right? Like that would be, like what, that would be our takeaway. Um, so, which is why we don't translate it that way because the English speaker would get the wrong idea. Thus, the challenge of Bible translation, little demonstration there, right? So the ESV translates bowels or stomach as heart and growl as yearn, which captures the intended meaning. So why take the time to show us that, Gabriel? I take the time to show us that because I want to highlight the deep-seated emotions of God, that God yearns, God groans for things. God has groanings. Guess what the context of Jeremiah 31, 20 is? In Jeremiah 31, God is groaning, looking forward to, yearning to bring his people out of exile in Babylon back home and restoring his darling son, Ephraim, back to himself. That's the context of Jeremiah 31. So when Daniel, guys get this, when Daniel picks up Jeremiah's letter, Jeremiah 29, and receives the word of God, comes into agreement with the word of God, finds himself enlisted and begins crying out. He's fasting, he's praying, he's putting on sackcloth and ashes, he's confessing his sins and the sins of his nation, pleading, God, would you would you bring about this future and a hope for your people? God's not sitting there, arms crossed and stoic. His inward parts are roaring. Before Daniel, here's the thing, but we don't always see the yearnings of God when we come before him in prayer, do we? We don't. And Daniel doesn't know this per se. He's, he's crying out. He's getting, I mean, he's fasting, praying, putting on ashes, pleading with God. But before Daniel even picked up Jeremiah 29, God's inward parts were already roaring, yearning, groaning. And if you're an intercessor, you already know this, don't you? That God has yearnings. And when we pray, when we fast, when we cry out, we're not convincing God he should care. You know he already cares. You know he already cares. He's groaning. He's yearning for the restoration of the people of God. And deeper and deeper and deeper ways. We're just seeing it in the word and coming into agreement with God's groanings. That's the invitation of prayer. That's what reading the Bible does for Daniel. And as I think about this, this yearning, this groaning, I think of the groanings of the Holy Spirit that he has for us even when we don't know how we ought to pray. Romans 8, 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how we ought to pray, for, as we ought to. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In Jeremiah 31, 20, God's groaning for his darling son, Israel, the people of God, to come into the fullness of the restoration he desires for them. In the context of Romans 8, all of creation, the people of God are groaning for the fullness of their adoption as sons, 
the redemption of their bodies, and the Spirit fills that groan so much more than they do, so that when we don't have the words for that anymore, he groans through us. And that's what we're invited to come into. It's that ancient groan of God for his sons to be close and near. Old and New Testament. There's this great story uh, where Mother Teresa is being interviewed one day, and the interviewer asks her, um, when you pray, what do you say to God? And Mother Teresa says, oh, no, 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 no. I just listen. He goes, okay. So then the interview continues, and the interviewer circles back and says, okay, well, when you pray, what does God say to you? She goes, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. He just listens to me. The point is this, is there's a place in prayer where words aren't the only form of communication. Words will always be used, of course. Absolutely. But if you're in prayer and you feel that you need to fill every single moment with words. You don't. Um, when I'm in prayer and I, feel that, and I find myself trying to fill every single moment with words, I quickly realize that rather than talking to God, I'm really talking at God. Listening is a form of prayer. When you truly listen to someone, you're communicating. You're communicating respect. You're communicating love. By quietly sitting in God's presence, I'm saying something. I'm saying, I believe you're here. And you're worthy of my reverence. Sorry. <laughs> um, without even using words, I'm speaking. I'm saying things to God. When you read the Bible devotionally, you're listening. You're asking, how might I be enlisted? Called to action treasuring his words, and God receives your listening with gladness. When you become present to God, you're saying something to him. You're saying, I believe that you're in heaven and I'm on earth, so I'm gonna let my words be few in this place. By sitting there and inhabiting stillness in solitude, you're speaking. You're saying you're glorious. And then maybe you do use words and you speak the words, God, you are glorious. And then God treasures it. He listens to it and he, he loves it. Our times of prayer should include times of talking to God and times of listening to God. Prayerfully meditating on the scriptures. Memorizing it if and when possible. Can I just champion Bible memory? <laughs> Please don't think of that as some dumb 1990s thing. It's a early 1000 BC thing. We just like kill that, okay? <laughs> like put that in the coffin and nail it shut. Bible memory is beautiful. <laughs> You're listening to the way the Spirit is pressing the words of God into you. And then thanking him for it, giving thanksgiving to that, and then talking to him about it. At, noticing the ways in which the Spirit of God is enlisting you to pray for the people of God 
as you read it. Noticing the ways in which the word of, you, you might take something from the word of God and make that a devotional regular practice in your life. Opening your windows towards Jerusalem, as it were. Noticing the ways that God is, is bringing his people out of iron furnaces because you see him doing that in the lives of your friends. Which, by the way, means you should know what God's doing in the lives of your friends. <laughs> our faith shouldn't be so private that we have no clue what God's doing in the lives of our friends. The point is this, is that when you open the Bible... You should open it the same way we're going to come to the table here in just a moment, believing that God feeds us here, humbly receiving the words and prayerfully communing with God in that space. Let me invite us to the table of the Lord. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you. Come, you who feel far from God, and you feel near. Come, you who feel clean, and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you who have much, and you who have little. Come black, come white, come people of every race, come women, come men, come children who know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ. As always, if you're in these middle sections, you'll come to this table, this section over here, and this section over here. Let's receive.